um, ask Ed to introduce himself. And uh, Ed is just going to speak for about 10 minutes or so, maybe up to 15 minutes, introducing a theme that I'm then going to speak about for the rest of the day. And it's the theme of the heart. So, Ed, just first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, do start us. Thanks, Vaughan, very much. Well, um, morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here with you. My first time in KL and wonderful to, um, to be amongst you today. My name is Ed Brooks. I'm uh, married with two small children. I live in Oxford and serve, as Vaughan said, at St. Ebbs amongst postgraduate students. We're going to dive in. Vaughan's asked me to, um, to start this morning thinking about uh, the dynamics of spiritual life. Turn, if you would, to the, uh, to the outlines, and we're there on, um, on the first page. As we think about this great theme of staying spiritually, fle- spiritually fresh, um, we need to know something about how spiritual life works. If you um, want to uh, fix your car up and get your car running a bit more smoothly, you've got to understand a little bit about mechanics. And so that's where we're starting off this morning. And we're going to think about this great theme in the Bible of the heart. It's there at the end um, of Psalm 27 that we've just read. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What does that mean? To be strengthened in our hearts, courageous in our hearts. Spiritual life isn't um, a part of life. Actually, spiritual life is all of life, driven by the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. He lives within his people. He lives within us as Christians. And so spiritual life is life lived, empowered by God's Spirit. Now, how does that work? Well, there are different um, models in um, society of the mechanics of life. I put some of them down on the, uh, the sheets just there, just how life is driven. Some would say we're primarily kind of rational animals. People are thinking things. And life is driven by our intellect. So we, we work things out, we do calculations, we think it through. And having thought about life, we can then be better equipped to to live rightly. Make a decision first and then action follows. That's the the rationalist paradigm. Others would say, no, life isn't driven purely by intellect. It's more a kind of uh, analysis between costs and uh, and benefits. This would be a uh, utilitarian uh, mode of thinking. So kind of market model. Life is about efficiency, maximizing benefits and minimizing costs. Not always financial, but it often comes down to that in our modern world. Maybe you've, uh, you've noticed that um, often when we're talking in society, things get reduced down to, that, to the bottom line. Others would say, no, we're actually, as people really most similar to the other animals, we're really driven by our instincts and by our DNA. We're driven by our animal nature. There'd be other uh, models, of course. The, uh, the postmodern model, in part at least, is saying that we're driven by our, our desires. Emotions, very important in that way of thinking. Now, what does the Bible say about this subject of the, um, the pattern of life, how we're driven forward in life? Well, the Bible says that we're driven by devotion. We're driven by our heart devotion. That's how the Bible understands human beings, made in God's image, made to live under him in the world, made to be orientated up to him in worship and then out to 
the world. In fact, the whole world is wired for worship, the Bible teaches. And so thinking about how life works and the dynamics of spiritual life, we're really taken back to the dynamics of worship and to the engine room of worship, which is the heart, the human heart. The heart, not a part of um, who we are, the part of the human person, but actually the heart in the Bible is the way the Bible talks about the center of who we are as thinking, feeling beings. If you like, the heart is the way the Bible talks about um, who we are in our entirety, and the heart is the control center. You can look down on the, uh, on the sheets. About how life flows out of the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Above all, the um, author writes, Guard your heart, for the heart is the wellspring of life. Life flows from the heart, which is the control center of the human person. In Luke 6, 45, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. This is the dynamics of spiritual life according to the Bible. The Bible says, God says that we're driven in life by heart devotion. We're made in God's image to worship him, to be devoted to him above all other things, and then to his world under him. And we're driven by that devotion or other devotions. The things that you are most devoted to, well, they're the things then that direct your life and determine your identity. Whatever has power over our heart has power over all of our actions. And so as we come today to think about this great theme of staying spiritually fresh, we we need to be thinking about how our hearts, our whole person before God, is renewed in devotion. Not about how we can um, add an extra component to life, but how our, all of our life, all of who we are, is renewed in relationship with God. I've put down some, um, some questions on the, the sheet just to get us thinking for a couple of minutes before Vaughan comes back to Psalm 27. And perhaps this will help to make things a little bit more concrete. Um, thinking about who or what we're most devoted to. There's some diagnostic questions there perhaps, to get you thinking about this question of devotion and the orientation of your heart. Think about your mind, what you daydream about. Perhaps money, what do you most naturally easiest spend money on? What makes you very happy or very sad? What determines your time and your motives? Those questions can be a good help to get, to get started in this way of thinking about our devotion, our heart orientation in life. Have a look at those questions in the box for a few minutes. Vaughan will step up and interrupt us and get us going again in Psalm 27. We're really going to have discussion time later, so I just want you to spend a minute on your own thinking through those things just to try and get yourself thinking. So it's not at this point for discussion around the groups. Just have a thought. Think, where is your heart focused? Because so often keeping spiritual, spiritually fresh and growing in the Christian life is about redirecting our heart so that it's focused above all on God. So it helps us to think what are the rivals to our affections in our
our hearts. I got very excited about two, three years ago because I bought a new iPhone. I'd never had an iPhone before, and I started getting lots of apps on my iPhone. And one app I particularly enjoyed is called a cardiograph. And if you put your uh, finger against the camera part of the iPhone, it'll measure your heart rate. So I thought that'll be interesting. I'll measure my heart rate. And it told me my heart rate was 48 beats per minute. And I thought, well, I don't know, is that good? Is that bad? So I thought I'd check it up on Wikipedia. And Wikipedia said this. It said a normal heart rate is between 60 and 90. But then it said these words. Listen very carefully. Conditioned athletes... I might just start again. (laughs) Conditioned athletes often have resting heartbeats even below 60. So I felt very good about myself. Mine was 48. A friend of mine later said that that particular app is notoriously unreliable. (laughs) I was uh, mentioning that a little while ago, and I noticed in the audience a member, former member of our congregation who was an Olympic silver medalist at rowing. And I asked him what his heartbeat was, and it was 33 per minute. Made me feel very small. Now, I'm not going to ask you what's your heart rate, but I am going to ask you, how's your heart? I'm not talking physically, but spiritually. So the Christian life is, and the battle for living the Christian life is won and lost in the heart. Our hearts naturally latch on to things. They're like heat-seeking missiles. They latch on to something. And whatever our heart latches on to, that's what we live for. And that determines the decisions we make day by day. We do what we want to do. And the question at any given moment is, what do we most want to do? And that will be determined by where our heart is focused. If it's God, then we'll do the godly thing. But if our heart is more focused on something or someone other than God, then we'll do the wrong thing. That's why I wanted to look at Psalm 27 as we began, because I think in Psalm 27, we find the heartbeat of a godly man. Here is David. And we find... David speaking in the midst of great trial, and his words reveal where his heart is focused. And I want us to notice three themes. And as we go through, I want us to keep asking, does my heart beat like this? As we think about the heartbeat of a godly man. First mark of a healthy heart is security. Verses 1 to 3. We're not quite sure when David wrote. Very often, you know, the psalms begin with a little sentence or so saying the situation in which the psalm was written. We don't get that here. But reading between the lines, it becomes very clear that David is under great pressure. Maybe it was when he was on the run. Do you remember when King Saul turned against him? And even though he was the Lord's anointed king... There was still another king on the throne. And you've got two kings in Israel. The king on the run, who's God's chosen king. And the king on the throne, who's the king that God has rejected. But David is despised and rejected at this point. 
Maybe even worse period in his life, I guess, was after David had been exalted as king over all the nation, but right towards the end of his life, his own son, Absalom, turns against him. How devastating that must have been. Well, whatever it was, we find he speaks with a repeated note of confident affirmation. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's not just reminding himself of general truths about God's greatness and power. He applies them to himself as he remembers that God is committed to him in covenant love. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. And all who trust in Christ can say the same. We needn't quiver when confronted with the powers of evil or the hidden dangers of darkness. Christ is our light. We didn't quake at the prospect of death or judgment or the horrors of hell. Christ is our salvation. We didn't fear the unknown or any circumstance that in our imaginations threatens to overwhelm us because Christ is far stronger than any rival power. He is in us and for us and we are in him. He is our stronghold. You and me, if we put our trust in Christ, could not be more secure. I wonder what your biggest fear is. I guess if we were to go around and ask each person, what's your biggest fear? There'd be a whole variety. But behind each of them, almost certainly, there'll be an idol. Something that threatens to drive us from Christ. And as we face our fears, we've got a choice each time. Will I place my ultimate trust in Christ? Or will I look to some rival to deliver me in this situation. Idols promise great security, but in the end, they just make us less secure. An idol, you remember, is anything that is a a rival to the one true God. Anything that we place where God alone should be and look to for ultimate security and satisfaction. For some here, perhaps the great fear is the fear of failure. That's a very common fear in Oxford where I work. Many Oxford uh, students are extremely clever and some of them have never failed in their life. In fact, when I meet Oxford students, I ask them, sometimes ask them, what have you failed in? And uh, they look blank and I keep pushing. I'm always thrilled when I hear they've failed their driving test first time. I'm looking for something that they haven't succeeded in. But some of them have never failed in anything. And you might think, as a result, they'd be relaxed and calm and confident. But actually, if you've never failed at anything, you can be terrified about the first time that you're going to fail. And if you're not careful, your identity and self-worth is bound up with achievements and success. And people like that become driven individuals. And as a result, they're vulnerable to overwork and to stress and to anxiety. The irony is that the more you live for success... In the end, after a while, the the more risky you are. You might not get it because you're so obsessed by getting successful that you end up getting very stressed and makes it much harder to be successful. For others, the great fear is the fear of loneliness. People desperate to build relationships. And as a result, so eager to please that 
they're never really sure they've done enough. People who are driven by loneliness may be desperate to get married as a younger person because everything depends on having that one person by my side. And they're so desperate to get married, the danger is they're either too picky because marriage is the most important thing and so you've got to find the perfect person and no one ever quite matches your ideal. Or you're not picky enough because you're so desperate to get married that anyone who shows any interest will do. And then if you're not careful, because there's nothing more important than relationships, and especially the, the intimate relationship of marriage or a very, very close friend, that you become over-demanding, emotionally controlling, manipulative. The irony is that people like that who are desperate for relationships end up driving people away because they're so important to them that they scare people off. Or the fear of being unattractive. There was a massive survey done in America recently of 33,000 women. 75% of them, between the ages of 18 and 35, felt that they were overweight. Although, in fact, only 25% of them were medically overweight. 45% of those who were actually underweight thought that they were overweight. We're obsessed by our body shape and what used to be in England anyway, just women is now increasingly true of men as well. And the more we worry, the more we look at magazines with the perfectly proportioned models, the more we convince ourselves that we're ugly. And then we fix one problem. We go on a diet, or we inject ourselves with Botox, or we go under the, the surgeon's knife, And then you notice something else that's not right. And you're never satisfied. Always there's something to spot. If we let the fear of failure or of loneliness or of ugliness drive us to the idols of success or popularity or beauty to find security, all that will happen is that our fears will keep on increasing. We'll never be satisfied. Idols promise much but they never deliver. In fact, they end up enslaving us. Wise people find their security ultimately in God. David in this psalm imagines the worst circumstance he could possibly face. Verse 2, in his imagination, or perhaps quite likely in reality, he's surrounded by enemies. He's besieged, verse 3, by an army. And let's be honest, our trials are unlikely to match that. He said, even in those extreme circumstances where I'm surrounded by an enemy and an army is encamped around me, even then, my heart, verse 3, shall not fear. I will be confident, says David at the end of verse 3. And he's not saying that because of the strength of his character or his great courage, but because he believes in the power and grace of God. Remember the great words of Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? God has committed himself to us in covenant love. He's not promised us an easy life, but he has promised to be with us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's sovereign and loving, and any hardship 
that he allows to come our way, he'll use for our good. Nothing can get in the way of his eternal loving purposes in our lives. We need to let that truth fill our hearts and calm our fears so that we face the future with humble confidence. I don't know what the future will hold for you. I don't know what you you imagine as great fears. Let me tell you, some of those fears could be realized. You students, you might fail that exam. Those of you in the workplace, you might lose that job. Those of you who are single, you might never meet Mr. or Miss Wright. So worried about your health going downhill, it might happen. Or you might have a terrible accident that could disfigure you so that you lose the beauty that you imagine you have. Your loved ones may well die. The friends might disappear. I hope those things don't happen to you. But the Bible never says that God will protect us from bad things in this life. All those things could happen. But Jesus Christ promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. Never. If our security is placed in the things of this world, then it's very fragile. It goes so quickly. But if our security is placed in God, it is absolutely secure. He'll never let us go. I love the story of the great early Christian leader, John Chrysostom. He was on trial for his life. And the emperor said, we'll banish you. And Chrysostom said, you can't. The whole world is my father's house. Well, then said the emperor, we'll execute you. You can't. My life is hid with Christ. Well, then, we'll dispossess you of your estate. You can't. All my treasure is in heaven. Well, then, we'll put you in solitary confinement. You can't. I have a friend from whom you can never separate me. I defy you, said Chrysostom to the emperor. There is nothing you can do to harm me. There's a man whose security was in Christ. And the question is, does our heart beat like that? Security. Next mark of a godly heart is satisfaction. We're looking now at verses 4 to 6. David begins, One thing have I asked of the Lord. Well, you wonder what's going to come next. If we had one request of God, I wonder what it would be. One thing you could ask. Given David's life, and remember at this stage, almost certainly he's on the run, he's being attacked by enemies, you could understand that if he said, I'm just asking the Lord for one thing, please give me safety or peace or comfort. But notice what David asked for. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's not speaking literally. Only priests could live in the temple precincts, and they had to be of the tribe of Levi. David was of the tribe of Judah. He's speaking, I take it, figuratively. He's saying, the great longing of my heart is to enjoy deep, conscious communion with God, to meditate on his glorious qualities, to delight in him, and to worship him. 
have we come to realize that no one and nothing is more beautiful than God? If so, that is a sure sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Those who are not converted, those who've never come to understand the, the grace of God in Christ, may find God awesome and, fright, and frightening, but not delightful and beautiful. They may get excited about what God could give them, forgiveness may be, or a place in heaven, but they'll never get excited about God himself. That only comes about by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's by the Spirit that we marvel at the wonder of God's perfect qualities. These amazing combinations we find in God. His holiness, his absolute moral perfection, and yet his mercy. His amazing grace to sinners. His greatness, he's the sovereign creator. And yet his condescension. He's interested in little worms like you and me. Even though the hairs on our head are numbered. His justice, he judges the world with justice and righteousness and truth and yet his amazing love in sending Jesus to face the judgment that we deserve. And of course, it's at the cross these great qualities are revealed most profoundly. The amazing grace and justice and love and mercy of God. We're going to spend eternity praising God for the beauty of his character. And David says, I want to do that now. I want to marvel at your perfection. I want to delight in you. I don't just want a deeper philosophical grasp of the attributes and qualities of God. I don't simply want a fuller knowledge of the contents of the scriptures so that I can say, yes, I've understood another book and tick it. I just want to delight and marvel in you. Certainly, we're to use our minds to meditate on the qualities of God. But David desires not just intellectual understanding. In the words of Paul in that wonderful prayer, I think in Ephesians 3, he asks that the eyes of his heart might be opened. It's a lovely prayer, that. And by saying, I want the eyes of my heart to be opened, Paul is saying, I don't just simply want the intellectual understanding about this truth. I want to marvel and delight in that truth in my heart. And that should be our longing as we approach the word of God. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That takes time. And our lives are very busy. There's an input overload, isn't there? Emails coming in, texts coming in all the time. Facebook profile to check, there's the radio to listen to, the television to watch. It's bewildering the amount of information going on. It's such a busy life. And sometimes we need to put those things on one side and take time to marvel and delight in the wonder of God. Unless we're feeling dry spiritually. And we need to be praying, Lord, help me see the beauty of your character. The Bible is all about God. It's all about Jesus Christ. That was a great turning point for me. I used to think that the Bible was full of lots of little messages for me. And every morning I need to read my Bible and I was looking for the specific message to zap me. And some mornings I'd think, yes, this is just what I need to do. This is for me. And other mornings it didn't seem to be a little message for me and I'd go away thinking God hadn't spoken to me. And then someone said, what you need to realize is that the Bible is not full, first and foremost, of lots of little messages for you. It's God's book about God. 
it contains some great truths about him. And there's always a truth about God to marvel in and to delight. So the first question as I read the Bible is not, what's the little message for me, but what can I learn about God? What is God saying about God in this passage? And then to dwell on that for a moment. And let the, the truth sink in. Respond as I should. This, may I say, is the key to the Christian life. It's the key to holiness. As Ed was saying at the beginning, we look to Proverbs chapter 4. The heart is the wellspring of life. In other words, all that we think and say and do flows out of the heart. Tim Chester has written a very good little book called You Can Change, in which he says that the root of all our behavior and emotions is the heart, what it trusts and what it treasures. In other words, where we look to for security and satisfaction. It's in the nature of the heart to latch onto something. And very often the heart will give ultimate value to things in this world, and that will inevitably lead to sin. Because at that moment, satisfying an idol is more important to us than pleasing the living God. Our pleasure, or our reputation, or our prosperity, or our comfort, or our health is more important than pleasing the living God. That's that's why we sin. And to deal with the problem, God doesn't come with a big stick and tell us off and then point us to a set of laws on a wall. That's moralism. And all that can do, and sadly much Christianity doesn't offer much more than that, all that can do is lead to a little bit of outward change for a while. It doesn't change the heart. It's only a matter of time before we just revert to the old patterns. God comes not with a stick pointing to a set of commands. God comes with the gospel. The revelation of his character of holy, gracious love in Christ. And by the Spirit, he softens our hearts that we might love him. And the more we see his love revealed to us in Christ in the gospel, the more we'll see him as far greater, far more glorious, far more lovely, far more satisfying than any rivals in our hearts. And then we'll want to please him. It's a very famous sermon preached in the early 19th century by the the Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers. It was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And so I'm sold on doing things that drive me in ungodly ways. What does God do? He drives it out with a deeper affection by the gospel for Christ. Now we all know that. A child's playing with a rusty knife. The best way to deal with the problem is not just keep telling the the child off that there's a place for that, but just give the child a brand new toy and suddenly the rusty knife's forgotten quickly. Or the teenager, and the parents are despairing. The teenager's spending all his days playing on that wretched computer game, and they can't get him off it, and then suddenly he's no longer interested. Why? He's met a girl. (laughs) And the computer game's not interesting anymore. And so it is with God. The more we delight in him, the less interested we are in those idols that drive us to do things that are wrong. 
We focus on him. The result is we're absolutely secure when trouble comes, verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Even in the most trying of circumstances, David was able, end of verse 6, to sing and make melody to the Lord. Even when life was very, very hard indeed, David's heart was focused on God and he delighted in him. The language here is unashamedly emotional. I'll offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. It's very un-English. But that's what David did. An American man was reflecting on the Christian culture in which he was raised. He said sometimes we'd go on a church camp And we'd be deeply moved by God's grandeur. But he said it was accidental. We didn't aim at the enjoyment of God. We knew, he said, we were supposed to believe the Bible and live live godly lives. But we didn't know we were supposed to have hearts filled with pleasures forevermore. We didn't understand that those very pleasures empower godly living And that empty hearts, however full our heads might be, jeopardize godly living. Well, David aimed at the enjoyment of God. That's why in the midst of great trials, he was singing and praising the Lord. And we too should aim at the enjoyment of God. My task when I preach is not just to teach information so that people can understand some truths in their heads. But as much as I'm able, and this is where I feel totally incompetent as a preacher, is to help people not only only to understand the truth about God, but to appreciate it and marvel at it and tremble at it. It's one of the purposes of singing, isn't it? Singing should, should move us so that we not only understand what we sing, but begin to express the feelings that we're, that are appropriate to the truths about which we're singing. It's not emotionalism. It's just an appropriate expression of the emotion we should feel as we delight in the wonder of the truths about God. Security. And then satisfaction. And again, the question is, does our heart beat like that? There's one final theme here. It's a big mood change. Verses 7 to 14 struggle. How very quickly the pendulum swings in the Christian life. We can be on cloud nine one moment and then the next moment we're in the thick of battle. So one moment we can be in church and we can really feel deep within our hearts a huge devotion and delight in God and the next moment There's huge, huge pressure and the old temptations, which when we're singing praise to God, we never think we'll ever fall for again, now feel very, very hard to resist. In this psalm, the exultant praise of verse 6 is replaced very quickly by the urgent prayer of verse 7. David's in dire straits. Hear, O Lord, he cries. You can sense the desperation. When I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. He feels distant from God. He's worried that God is turning a deaf ear to his prayer. That's why he's pleading with God to listen. Verse 9, he feels guilty. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. He even fears that God could reject him altogether. 
Verse 12, he feels pressurized, surrounded by enemies, and he pleads with God, don't give me up to the will of my adversaries, my enemies. See, I cannot expect in the Christian life that I'll have some kind of crisis moment and that'll move me into a whole new plane of different of Christian experience. And from, from now on, I'll just enjoy security and satisfaction. I've found the key to Christian living, and I just delight in Jesus. Complete security, complete satisfaction, and the struggles of things of the past. It doesn't work like that. A Christian life's an ongoing battle. At times, we'll face hugely challenging circumstances. It might be because of our own sin. Maybe some here are going through really challenging times now because of your own sin. And you feel you're trapped in a cycle of wrong thinking and wrong behavior that no one else can see. They look at you and assume you're fine. But you're really, really struggling. Or it might be because of the sin of someone else. And they've hurt us deeply. Or difficulties in the circumstances of life, at work or in the family or with our health. And life's a big struggle and the Christian walk is very, very difficult. Well, in those times, we've got a choice. In the midst of this challenge, will I keep trusting Christ and looking to him for security and satisfaction? Or will I look somewhere else? And Satan, you can be sure in those times, will immediately come and offer a shortcut out of your circumstances. You say, if you just fit in with everyone else, just go with the flow, then they'll accept you and you'll be included and your struggles will disappear. Or he'll dangle an escape route that promises to anesthetize the pain and distress that we feel. We're feeling guilty. Oh, well, just switch off your consciousness. Stop thinking about your conscience. Turn on the television. Surf the net and then you won't have to trouble yourselves with those anxious thoughts. Go shopping. Anything to stop us facing the real issues. Or maybe the anesthetic that he offers is something altogether more damaging in and of itself. Alcohol, drugs, pornography. When we turn away from thoughts that are troubling us to somewhere else, all too easily where we turn can become an addiction. Because we're escaping the discomforts of life. Well, David knew well the temptation to turn from God. I take it that repeated resolve in verse 8 suggests he had to really steel himself. He said, you've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. He's aware of the voices of temptation. I guess he often didn't feel like gazing at God. But you can almost feel that through gritted truth, he says, I will, I will seek the face of the Lord. And there in verse 14, he's speaking to himself again. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. And sometimes we have to take ourselves in hand and speak to ourselves and with determination say, even though it's going to be much easier to look somewhere else, I'm going to keep looking to him. I'm going to keep trusting in him. I'm going to keep waiting for him. The difficulties still surrounded David. God had still not delivered him. And yet he urges himself to keep trusting and we see in him a pattern that is perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the son of David. He, of all people, had the perfect spiritual heartbeat. His security absolutely focused in his father. Do you remember he stands before Pontius Pilate and Pilate says to him, I have the power to free you or to crucify you. And Jesus said, you'd have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Absolute security. Or satisfaction. The disciples one day urged him to eat. And he said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my bread and butter. That's what I delight to do. To walk in fellowship with my heavenly father and to do what pleases him. Satisfaction. But of course he knew struggle too. He was tested and tempted just as we are, yet without sin. As he faced the cross, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And through the struggle, he remained faithful to God and remained obedient even unto death. And it's because of his cross that he's able to offer forgiveness for our hard hearts, hearts that so easily and quickly run to idols for security and satisfaction. In Christ there's forgiveness for hard hearts. And praise God, in Christ there's inspiration for cold hearts. And the more we see the love of God in Christ, the more we'll see there's nowhere better to turn for security. There's no deeper satisfaction than is found in him. And that will help us to persevere in the struggle. As we say, verse 8, you've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. But I want us to spend some time in the groups thinking about some of those themes. You might want to begin, if you wanted to with some thoughts about where our hearts might be looking to, those questions at the beginning. So we think about mind, money, mood, minutes, motive. What do they tell us about where our hearts might be fixed sometimes? And then think about these themes of security, satisfaction, struggle. I've got some questions down to help you to try and apply some of these things to our hearts. So over to you in the groups to think further.